recording. Fantastic. And I, um, I will introduce tonight's topic and our speakers. And I have to say, I'm really excited for tonight's seminar as we're going to approach a very important and topical issues uh, that is the link between climate change and human mobility. But we're going to, to do so from a very regional perspective uh, because we're going to reflect on how policy and art can work together to better understand and address uh, human mobility in, in the context of climate change. And we're going to discuss this uh, with Dina Unesco, who's man, hi Dina, who's manager in the adaptation division at the United uh, Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the NFCC Secretariat, and whose work specifically focuses on um, human mobility and climate change. And before joining the UNFCCC, uh, Dina led for many years the Migration, Environment and Climate Change Division in the International Organization on Migration. And then we have a fantastic um, artistic collaboration, Lena Dobrowolska and Theo Ormodskipping, an artist, hi guys, <laughs> an artistic collaboration uh, from Poland and the UK, whose work focuses on many aspects related to climate change. And, but, um, in, 19, in 2019, uh, they won the Coalition for Art and Sustainable Development Prize with uh, their project, You Never Know When They Too May Become a Refugee, which turned into a very, very powerful uh, film. Elena and Tao will tell us more about this during the seminar, which will be released very soon. And the format we chose for this seminar is not really the traditional one. We tried to structure it more as a discussion among uh, the four of us, and I really hope you will join us and contribute to the discussion with all the questions. And, and finally, let me remind you that uh, the seminar will end at the latest by 7.15, so we should have some good time uh, to dive into the, the topic of the seminar. Uh, so let's start, and just um, as a way to introduce the topic today, I am um, I just would like to recall that, you know, the issue of climate change and human mobility has attracted a lot of attention in recent years, not just within academia or policy, but also across the general public. And I'm sure you have heard of many alarming estimates in the news talking about up to 1 billion uh, climate refugees by 20, 2050, or you might have read some articles like the one that appeared in the, New in the New York Times a couple of years ago about the great climate migration that has begun. And, and of course, there is no doubt that climate change is expected to have very significant impacts on the driver of human mobility, but this kind of narrative somehow, um, I would say that maybe in some cases are based on some simplistic assumption or tend to overlook the actual complexity um, of the link between human mobility and climate change. And may also miss the full picture of what is really happening on the ground. So I would like to start this conversation by asking Dina to help us navigating a bit this uh, complexity, also as a way to set the discussion, the scene for the, uh, the discussion today. And, and Dina, um, what do you think are the key aspects, the key facts uh, that we should keep in mind to get the debate around climate change and human mobility right? And in this respect, why do you think that um, talking about climate refugees uh, may not be probably the most appropriate um, option? And, and finally, uh, just to connect it a bit more with uh, the topic of uh, the seminar, 
Uh, can you give us also a taste of what's, what do you think is the contribution that art can give in this space? Over to you, Dina, with this very complex and broad question. <laughs> Thank you so much, Elisa. I hope you can hear me well. It's okay, yes. And hello, uh, everyone. It, it's such a, a pleasure to, to have to have the chance to be in this panel uh, with you, Elisa, representing the research more world, uh, and with um, with uh, Lena Anteo, representing the art uh, and and how we connect all these together. For setting the scene, uh, I picked just a few elements so that we don't go in 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 depth in this in this topic and I, I, I don't know if our audience must be a, a mix of people who, who really focus on the topic and more general audience. So I'm trying just to give a bit of a flavor or a glimpse of what we know and also what we don't know about migration and climate change in uh, now in 2022. And uh, then to connect it a little bit on this, what we know and don't know to open up the doors to the art uh, entry uh, and, and world of creativity and imagination. So I think what I want to, to say first, it's simple things. First of all, that we speak about environmental migration. We speak about climate-induced migration. Uh, but all the work we have been doing over the past years shows how difficult it is to isolate and to put just alone from other factors, the environmental drivers, and even more difficult climate change related impacts. So the multi-causality of migration, I think has to stay at the heart of our discussion and to realize how much the environmental drivers are connected to absolutely everything else, poverty, uh, injustice, uh, demographic issues, political issues, all of this multicausality in a way already opens our eyes towards what art can in a way bring when I connect what happens to our environment with poverty and for instance inequalities in our world. So that's one key point. Then I think it's very important to highlight that there is no one legal definition of migration in our today's world and so it's still up to states to define who they define as migrants and as international migrants or as foreign born nationals. So it's very difficult to have global data and one status on environmental migrants uh, because of this multicausality and this complexity. So behind the word migration, in fact, we hide so many different realities. We speak of internal migration and international migration. We speak of forms of migration that are extremely forced, like displacement due to disasters. But we also speak of migration as a strategy, a human normal strategy of adapting to change and very positive one. We speak of uh, regional migration and a lot of people moving today in our contemporary world because of the environment move either internally, so within the borders of their states or uh, regionally. And a lot of this migration is south to south and not necessarily south to north as we imagine it. And we speak also of seasonal migration, urban migration. So it's such a, a diversity 
And that's also for me, one of the first entry points in the artwork on, on being able to capture diversity and of situation and complexity and nuances via art. Then what we know today is we, we have good figures now, thanks to the work of different players, in particular the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center with IOM, with states, with UNHCR, with other, with IFRC, the Red Cross. We do have data on sudden onset, so on floods, uh, on weather-related displacement due to specific events. So we know that in 2020, more than 30 million people were displaced by weather-related events. What is very difficult to know today is the very slow onset and climate change impacts on human mobility. So we have also insights, but not, if we are honest, we don't have a, a global figure on how many people move because of environment and climate change impacts today, and in particular because of slow onset. So we know, for instance, that sea level rise and coastal erosion puts at risk over 680 million people who live in areas that are in fact below uh, sea level. So it's very important to, to be aware of the risk, but it doesn't make out of all these people migrants because a lot of these people will not have the means to move. So we know people exposed to desertification risk. We know people exposed to sea level rise. We know people who are exposed to extreme heat, but it won't make all these people um, migrants. So these, I think, are key to understand why it's so difficult to have a climate refugee status because of all these elements, difficulty to isolate the environmental uh, drivers, difficulty to prove why, if it's climate change that made you move. Um, the fact that a lot of this migration is internal. So if we speak of refugees, we have to speak about people crossing borders and in need of third country protection or international protection, where you, if you speak of internal migration, people are still under the responsibility of their states. So the difficulty around this, don't, it doesn't mean we don't do anything and that there's no, nothing to do and this doesn't exist. On the contrary, we are ringing alarm bells that people do move because environmental degradation and climate change impacts on their livelihoods and that innovative migration uh, policies and practice can be part of the response and key there human rights law human rights respect of human rights and in particular also for international migration the right for non-refoulement so if your life it's a threat, you can't be returned to a place where life is a threat. So there are a lot of tools to, to enter. Then to, to just set up the scene briefly more on the policy dimension, because you ask also how this is more at the policy level, I think we have to acknowledge that over the past 20 years, there has been a major change. Initially, when you were working on climate, policies or environmental policies, no one was talking of migration. And even at the climate conferences for 16 years, there was of course no mention of migration. And also there was not even much talk about social dimensions of climate change. And if you look at migration, it has been very slow for many, many years. 
there hasn't been even an international discussion on, on migration. IOM started an international migration dialogue in 2000. Uh, but this was very slow to, to evolve. So it took ages to speak about migration and negotiate the text on migration. And it was even more complicated to speak of environment and climate change in these discussions. But now we do have a framework at international level that connects. So in the climate world, if you look at the climate lens, you really have migration that has been added in the adaptation thinking, in the loss and damage thinking, um, bit in mitigation, vulnerability questions, and recognized in the Paris Agreement, migrants' rights. And then you have uh, um, now with the Glasgow uh, Conference, this is pursuing its, its road. So there is a task force on displacement that works on this. And, and so there is an anchorage. And now the key question is transforming this anchorage and words into action. And then on the migration side, it's the same. We have since 2016, the New York Declaration, 2018, the Global Compact on Migration for regular, safe and orderly migration that recognize in objectives two and five, environmental, climate and disaster drivers. So we have an anchorage there. And in 2022 in May, there will be a first forum to review this. So the road has been long, bumpy, tough, uh, moving uh, up and down, but there is anchorage. And there is some, I think we have to recognize that at policy level, there is progress. And that all these areas, in fact, connect and build on each other. So you have the migration area that recognized Paris Agreement, you have this, the development world and the new agenda for development, the recognized migrants, contribution, you have disaster risk reduction frameworks and recognizing migration and climate change. You have land, environment, water, biodiversity, recognizing migration work. And you have all the work at humanitarian level, urban level that recognizes the connection between migration and climate change. So the policy framework offers now really true anchorage to advance on it. And the key question is how do we advance? So my question for the panel today was a bit whether art is part of action or is it a conveyor? Is it a tool? Is it action itself? Is it evidence? So I think for me, what is very important is to think that migration, what I discussed until now, I spoke about statistics. I spoke about data. I spoke about uh, policies. I spoke about legal issues. But what I haven't spoke about is that it's people, it's humans, it's emotions, it's life, it's dreams, it's fears, it's happiness, it's sadness, that's migration, it's about people. And how do we manage then to have this reconciliation between the technology, policy, work, the action, and this human a uh, key thing that it's migration essence. And I really believe that art, it's one of the best ways to, to make it this connection. And then for me, that it means you can really advance, in fact, thinking, you can change the narrative about migration. I think you can really 
push policymakers to get more motivated by bringing them back really just to the fact that they are people and the general audience to feel more concerned if you know really the stories of people. So that's for me, I think um, this connection on, and that's I, I think Leo and Theo, uh, <laughs> Leo and Theo, Lena and Theo will, will, will talk about this and what I feel in their artwork, it's, it's this connection and also provoking you to invert perspectives a bit so that you understand the reality of it. So strangely enough for me, uh, art is maybe the best way to push people to be real by being freer and more uh, open to imagination. And uh, yes, and, and so I stop, I stop here, I pass on to, to you too. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we will discuss further all this. So just, yeah, thank you, Elisa. If there's anything oh. else you need me to say, please don't hesitate and I, I will. I won't, I won't. <laughs> no, but for now, I, I think you really provided uh, a really comprehensive overview and set the scene very, very well and raised really important questions that now we, we will pass on to, to Lena and Theo. And I think actually by watching the movie, they, they did really an excellent job in capturing many of the complexities that you mentioned in this introduction, and also to bring the debate to that human dimensions that basically it's, it's everything migration is about, a human experience. So I would like now to turn to Lena and Theo to, to ask them a bit more about the movie they, they made. Um, what was the motivation behind this project? How did you approach the process? And why do you think it was so important to, to bring art into the debate? Thank you so much, uh, Elisa, and thank you, Dina, for the excellent explanation. I think we learned so much, um, even though we know quite a bit, we're always learning from you both. So thank you very much for having us here and giving us the, the opportunity to, to join this panel. Um, we're going to try and talk about the film and, and let uh, the audience into the process which we went through as we, we made it and as we researched it. Um, and what we're going to do is share the screen and show a few film stills. Unfortunately, the film's not ready, so we haven't got a trailer and we haven't got any excerpts to share with you today, but hopefully they'll be ready soon. One second. Can everyone see that? Yeah. Yes. Brilliant. Thank you very much. So, um, you've already introduced the film, but we would we'll just say the title again and say that it's it is still work in progress, but the and so is the the title a working title, but the film is called You Never Know. One day you too might be a refugee. And just to briefly summarise the narrative, the film is set in 24, uh, 2049, and it portrays the displacement and subsequent migration of a family from a fictional island, which is called the Island of Grain. And that island is a, a low-lying developing, um, a small island developing state, uh, which is located off the coast of England. And the family in their migration are traveling from that island to an asylum center in a, in a future United Kingdom. And the, the story of the family's displacement in migration is, is seen in flashbacks. Um, as the story is told by Cara, who is the head of the, the family, um, to an interviewer 
during the course of a, a resettlement interview, which will determine whether or not the family will be accepted onto a progressive uh, climate displacement resettlement scheme in an unknown country in the global south. This is a fictional scheme which we've developed. And the film has been supported by the, the Coalition for Arts and Sustainability via the 2019 Coal Prize. And just to, just to be clear, coal is not anything to do with carbon. It's not funded by coal companies or anything. It's, it's just that Coalition for Arts and Sustainability in French turns into coal somehow. Um, and it, through the Coal Prize, we were linked to the platform on disaster displacement and displacement uncertain journeys, which is the sort of arts and public engagement side of the, the platform. Um, the film was written in collabor collaboration with a diverse range of climate change and displacement specialists, as well as those that have been displaced themselves or have had to migrate. And it, the film also draws upon our previous documentary work and our personal migration experiences as a Polish-British artist collaboration and couple. Um, so, sorry, apologies for that. Uh, so conceptually, the film explores the, the humanitarian, ethical, legal and political issues surrounding climate change-induced migration. But as Dina has said, more importantly, uh, as artists, we explore the lived experiences of migration and displacement what leads people to have to leave their homes, uh, especially in relation to climate change, the complexity of why people end up crossing borders to seek refuge, the choices they make on the way during migration, the structural and institutional violence and the failings of our existing systems of supporting people, particularly the asylum process, and the psychology of families and individuals who are impacted by climate change migration, displacement, and the policies which are meant to protect them. Um, so the film started in response to our previous work, which was called Future Scenarios, um, during which we explored both current and future scenarios of climate change, one of which was displacement. Um, and we looked at um, displacement and migration in Bangladesh and Uganda where we came to understand some of the following things which helped shape the narrative of the film. Um, in Uganda, which we visited in 2017, we learned how the lion's share of the world's uh, refugees are currently hosted in developing nations, uh, even though such nations lack, uh, often lack the resources to adequately support their own populations. And we also saw how firsthand Uganda accepted refugees on a prima facie basis which instantly granted them access to healthcare, schooling, and jobs. And our conclusion uh, when working in Uganda and thinking about future scenarios of how nations might support uh, those who had to migrate because of climate change was that actually it, it was some, these way of thinking about migration was something for the global north to aspire to, especially because the global north was primarily responsible for the climate crisis. Um, and in Bangladesh, uh, where we also visited in 2017, we learned how uh, the nation, which is often referred to as the ground zero of uh, climate crisis, is in fact a, an expert that had much to teach the global north as well. 
For example, we saw how cyclical and temporary migration was used as an adaptation strategy by people that were displaced by coastal or riverbank erosion to generate income to rebuild their lives. And we also saw that how that when we were meeting people on the ground that had been displaced, that many of them would say that they weren't displaced by climate change, that they were displaced because they couldn't rebuild their homes. They couldn't buy land to, to stay in the same location, which is why they were um, migrating to, for example, Dhaka to find work and to try and rebuild. And that led us to think about uh, the global north and how in, in Europe, in, in the United States, we've made migration quite complicated by politicizing it so that in many ways, perhaps we struggle to use it as an adaptation strategy so easily uh, like they do in, in Bangladesh. So I will now speak about how we researched the film actually and uh, what informed our ideas and how we translated into the, the narrative. So um, as Teo said on, in 2019 on the merit of the Future Scenarios project, we were awarded the COAL Prize, which that year focused on the theme of disaster displacement. And for the prize, we proposed a reimagining and an in inversion of the displacement refugee narrative. So instead of the typical South-North migration route scenario, which is happening now, we explored a hypothetical north-south migration scenario in which a family from the global north were displaced by climate change and then generously hosted by a nation in the global south. And the, the, the Coal Prize linked us to Hannah Entwistle Shafusai, who is a researcher focusing on human mobility and an art historian and a curator who runs the curatorial project Displacement Uncertain Journeys, which is the arts arm of the Platform on Disaster Displacement, or PDD for short. And PDD is a state-led initiative working towards uh, better protection for people displaced across borders in the context of disasters and climate change. And only because we had access and could collaborate with both Hannah and the PDD, we were able to really have a very nuanced um, and informed conversations about, about these issues. And we engaged with the PDD's steering group, uh, which is made up by policymakers, human rights lawyers and human mobility researchers in a workshop setting that allowed us to critique, improve and improvise upon the first draft of our film script which turned out to be a very bad Hollywood movie. And by working with the experts from the steering group, we ended up with a much more nuanced narrative that explores the complexity of being displaced by climate change. The consultation with the steering group made us realize that we needed to explore the following, uh, that most climate-induced displacement is internal and does not cross borders that currently there are some weak options available in existing frameworks to protect those displaced by climate change, but there is no convention or legal definition of a person who is displaced by climate change. That we should devise a speculative policy that would adequately support those displaced by climate change. And the fictional climate and migration policy that we ended up creating was based 
upon an existing Canadian community sponsorship resettlement scheme, which provides, provides 12 months financial and emotional support within a community to help refugees integrate. And lastly, that we must focus on conveying the lived experience of, of displacement. Um, and this important strand of the research for the film, um, in, in this research strand, we explored the testimonies of displacement and had conversations with practitioners working in the field, and most importantly, spoke to those who had themselves been displaced. And perhaps the most informative conversation that we had was with Afghani director and refugee Hassan Fazili, who directed Midnight Traveler, which is an autobiographical documentary film that chronicles his family's migration from Afghanistan to Europe. And even though Hassan and his family were displaced by conflict, our conversation with him and his um, film revealed and allowed us to understand the following two important points. How the family dynamics is strained during migration, the way that displacement, the way that displaced people think, what motivates them and who they become when they migrate, how the new identity as a displaced person is being formed and by what. It highlighted the emotional and psychological impact of the bureaucratic violence that is inherent to our existing asylum processes. In particular, the challenges surrounding credibility that displaced people face when testifying or telling their narratives as part of the asylum evaluation processes, which in our understanding is a symptom of a wider issue of the agentless refugee victim status that the existing asylum system imposes upon displaced people. A status which is further reinforced by the logic of paternalistic humanitarianism and the nation state led idea that humanity is always derived from citizenship instead of the status of the displaced being considered as post-national social formation. The concepts of moral economy of lying and narrative capital by Roberto Benedus were particularly helpful in informing our way of thinking about the role of storytelling uh, narrative and taking positions in, these, in this asylum process. So with all this in mind and an improved script in hand, we very quickly shot the film when pandemic restrictions were lifted in the summer of 2021 on locations in Kent, Essex and in London. And although we had a script, most of the scenes were improvised because we wanted the actors to respond to the situations that they found themselves in during the course of the fictional migration as a real family would do. And by doing so, we hope that the performances and actions would be believable and like those we had encountered when conducting our documentary work. And to enhance this, we filmed in a way that was dynamic and naturalistic that borrowed from documentary camera work. And I mean, the, the biggest question is that why did we make the film? And for us, the, the film's intention is to directly influence policy changes within the, the human mobility policy discourse, specifically regarding the legal recognition and protection of those who are displaced by climate change. 
with the intention of increasing, getting support increased for those who have already been displaced, who will be displaced and in the future. And to do so, we're not just trying to raise awareness in the general public amongst, um, but also specifically target policymakers themselves and those within the policymaking arena um, as they actually negotiate and develop uh, the protection tools and frameworks which will safeguard those who have been displaced um, uh, right now and those who will be displaced in the future. And to do so, to reach policymakers, we're actually working on interventions such as showing the film, having workshops, having discussions with different scenes and different um, bits of the film in policymaking spaces like the COP and like the International Conference on Refugee Crisis and Forced Migration, which will happen in New York in uh, first half of this year. And we're doing that with the support of the of displacement and certain journeys. And why we think that is important is exactly like Dina said, that we as artists are not just there to communicate these issues to people outside of the policymaking arena, we're there to stir and to bring uh, uh, ambitious ideas and thoughts and feelings to the policymakers themselves as they're in the very act of policymaking. Thank you, Alicia. I'll hand it back to you. Uh, I realize I <laughs> handed off. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, thank you. And um, actually, yeah, uh, I was very curious but you know i will keep this question for q a um because i yeah to hear a bit more about how your project were received uh, at cop 25 or uh, with other policymakers you found along the way but i will now turn to dina because i want to give her the opportunity to elaborate a bit more about what the contribution uh, of art in this policy space um, uh, can be given that you have been working for many, many years with policymakers. And, and so I also would like to get um, your opinion on, on how art can be powerful in this space. Okay. Thank you so much. And I have to say that I had the chance to, to see the movie uh, or uh, I know there is still a lot of the, that uh, Leonardo are also still working on it. But I had the chance to, to see it and to see the seriousness of their research. Uh, and it's exactly what I think it brings. It brings uh, a bit of, um, uh, it's pushing a bit, it, what you said, the word ambition, you know, it's pushing a bit policymakers to think differently because it inverts the perspective with this sentence, you could also become a refugee one day. So it is a bit provocative in this way. In the same time, it, it really captures the complexity of migration um, story and road of a family, which I think also, uh, it's exactly what I was saying at the beginning, the nuances. And then you also, and I, I, I really encourage everyone to see the movie when it's out, you capture the beauty of nature. And I think this is also key. This is key in this topic on migration, environment, and climate change. When you are in, in negotiations and people discuss a comma or an and on the or, if you bring the 
beauty of the nature you know it it brings back why in fact we are doing this and and then the other side it's that migration as we are always saying it's about the the, the human beings and you capture also the core of migration around families and i think that's also very important to show the the this cell of family uh, or the lack of it how important it is in in the migration story so i would say for me elisa um i wanted so much to uh, to be part of this and to i'm i feel very lucky that i could see the movie and discuss with you too about the movie because your point it's uh, maybe you too you'll be a refugee and I was a refugee. So I'm talking both as a um, professional who has been really focusing on policy making, which very often for people lacks action and, and practicality and concrete um, vision. You know, when you work in an organization like I work in IOM, that's very much hands on, action oriented. Uh, where the majority of people work with migrants, delivering services for migrants, assisting young children who are alone, you know, and then they have to go to a climate conference and to negotiate and to see documents that are very technical. There is a disconnect uh, that happens. And I think if we do not see in policymaker the people with their heart and their minds and we don't treat them as people and we don't believe that better policies will bring a better results for people and are concrete i think we disconnect totally action from policy and from humanity and also from 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 making it useful so i find that art can really provide this glue somehow and, and connect these different areas. Um, so this is from the policy perspective. And then from a human point of view, for me, indeed, having been a refugee five years of my life as an adolescent, uh, so not the easiest years to be, I think, uh, uh, um, a refugee. And I connect very much to the characters that you have in, in your movie, because one of them is a young girl, as I was. And I find, you know, what strikes me, it's that we are too much focusing on the victimization, on the law, uh, on, on the negativity. And I think uh, what I took from my experience was the empowerment. And you, that's what art can, in a way, help us understand that you lose and you gain, that you are sad and unhappy, uh, that it's good and it's bad, and that it's easy and it's tough and you lose some of your roots but you create new ones and and you learn a new language and you open up and and you can combine both and it's really up to each person to make something out of it for me having been a refugee i consider it's one of the most empowering in fact uh, experience of my life in the same time i don't want anyone to be a refugee because why do you have to go through losing absolutely everything? So I find art allows us to indeed better understand human stories and then emotions, but also this loss and, and gaining from, from migration. Then also I think um, people sometimes when they migrate lose everything, but maintain very often art in their luggage. And art evolves also in a new place and gets even more creativity by connecting different cultures. 
I also think that art can bring more a sense of emergency and urgency into policy making. So to push a bit the timelines um, by showing a bit more specifically the timeline of a story of a person and the timeline of the environment changing in this particular case. So I think this sense of urgency can come stronger through art sometimes more than in alarmistic way with statistics that sometimes lose the human dimension uh, of it. And then, of course, also these nuances and complexities we, we mentioned before. And just to say, I had the chance now to work with different artists for the years, and, and I found each time there has been an impact. You know, having worked, having had the chance to be, for instance, uh, exposed to the work of Lucy Orta and her passport, having this symbol of the passport, but with a creative artistic way, I really think it has helped everyone who was exposed to the work on displacement and cross-border displacement and the Arctic and the change in the, in the um, uh, Arctic also um, uh, environment to better understand it. Or the work uh, that Marie Velardi does, uh, she's a Swiss artist and she, she, she portrays beautifully the disappearing lands uh, or photographers like Alessandro Grassani or Samuel Turpin, I think they did maybe the strongest help in a way for us at the Paris Agreement and IOM's own council to advance, in fact, the, the awareness about the topic. So it's for me a, a joint also approach. Um, and I have so many other examples of music and poetry and movies. And so I think, yes, I'm very grateful for people like uh, uh, Elena Anteo, who invested so much work in doing the right research uh, and to use the right words, to, though there is no one single agreed terminology, so it makes the work more difficult. But and to, in a way, be ambitious, push the debate, invert a bit the perspectives, invite everyone to think differently. And this, I really think, changes the narrative uh, we have on migration uh, and climate change today, and especially on migration, I think, and this negativity only, uh, victimization. And I think that allows this to, to open up a bit the eyes to, to the nuances and and, and to push through this, I think, for more action. I believe that by talking to emotions for policymakers, it helps in a way advancing. And you have very strong policymakers that speak from the heart, who also speak of art, and who advance. I'm thinking of Anate Tong for Kiribati and, and the movie Anate Arc. I think it has made a, a big impact on the work at concrete level on policy work in the Pacific. So, I stop here. <laughs> no, thank you, Dina. Thank you. And actually, I would like to, um, to echo a bit what you said about how powerful this inversion of the narrative is, because I also had the chance to watch the film, as I mentioned. And, and as a researcher, the sometimes work on human mobility and climate change, because it's not really the exact focus of, of my research, but it's, I mean, I also work with that. Um, when I watched the film, it was like 
if I understood what the topic of my, of my research was for the first time. It was the first time that I was really somehow, you know, understanding what it means to be a, a person on the move in the context of climate change. So I just wanted to, 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 to acknowledge that. And, and yeah, and art can also be a powerful tool for, for research too, not just for policy makers and actually to, to make us think about why we're doing research or, and for whom we're doing research. Uh, having said that, um, I think that we kind of, I mean, we made very clear that we think that this collaboration between policy and art is, can be very powerful, can also be empowering, and, and we need probably more of it. But if I can um, play the devil's advocate somehow, um, why, if this partnership is so important, art is still at the periphery of the discussion? What do you think are the challenges for art and policy to collaborate more? And if you think that actually there are some challenges, what can we do to overcome them? And this is a question for the whole panel. So I don't know who want to start first. Maybe Lena or Theo. I can I can certainly start with some some challenges, and I think that even though Dina has so wonderfully praised us for doing the right research and using uh, the words to the best of our ability, I think as artists we we live in fear of using the wrong words, uh, saying the wrong things, creating fake news, uh, and proliferating information which may not be true, and. I think that therein lies that the risk of art is, is misinterpreting, <laughs> uh, going off in the wrong direction. But I think with that risk also comes uh, the ambition and, and the, the provocation. Um, and I think that thinking a little bit more about its place within the policymaking forms, I think about the impact that the real events have had, for example, during COPs, uh, think about how um, cyclone or typhoon Haiyan impacted the COP when uh, the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage was being established. And what we found by actually visiting the COP was how uh, devoid the space was of reminders of what was actually being talked about. And as artists, um, Timothy Morton describes artists as exploiting gaps, as looking for gaps. And to hear you say that watching the film reminds you why you're doing the research, it, 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 it not illustrates, but uh, explores why people are being displaced in a way, and this way, and what it looks like and what it feels like during that displacement. We, by going to the policymaking space, by hearing from policymakers that there is a real need for artists to do this, you are giving us the mandate to do it. And, but also we're running with that feeling of, well, can we be the intervention which comes into that space, much like youth activists are doing, much like civil society is doing in, in the COP space by really shaking things up, be it doing fossil of the day if you're um, climate action network. And that by bringing back into that policy space itself, the, the, the reality of what's happening is happening. That's really where the shaking up comes from. But I think there's another challenge there as well, is that as 
art becomes recognized as this tool or filmmaking or whatever, or even new activists are recognized as having this important role, there's a danger that then we become sort of tokenized or the addition. So now we have the art to stir everyone up, to be energized, to be motivation. Whereas artists, especially those who do an immense amount of research is, are much more on the side of contributing to the conversation and to the research, especially around things like displacement and the things which fall into non-economic loss and damage, where we're talking about the impact on people's cultures, their psychology, their, their mental health, all of which things aren't deals with because invariably it's coming from the unconscious and from a place where we try and describe these things in a way that others can understand. Mm. And I'll stop there because I'll lose the plot. Uh, another point, just very shortly, is um, about, I guess, interdisciplinarity, um, which is a very, you know, current, fashionable word in, in the world of research and academia. But actually, it's, it's very poorly practiced or it, it you know, it lacks in, um, in good initiatives, partly because it, it's very kind of energy consuming and it needs a lot of resources to set up. Um, but um, partly also because I think despite of us, uh, and I'm speaking about the kind of person from academic and research perspective, we, we are aware of being sort of in pigeonholed. We don't want to do it, but disciplines are still sort of in the separate bubbles and I think why climate change is kind of challenging that is that uh, it is an interdisciplinary research uh, sorry issue and it it sort of it's it showed in a way we measure it but now as we start to understand the the implications and impact of society it even more kind of asks us to really start thinking in an interdisciplinary way and I think that's how really um art can come into play into this in a sense it becomes more like a glue for everyone to to actually have a a dialogue but also i think as a speculative tool in a toolbox in terms of um, policy making or any type of research so something that really pushes the envelope and says yes and this is what kind of refers to what dina said what we don't know art can be very a kind of a good framework or a probe of you know, seeing what we don't know and how do we think about what we don't know and is it the right way, way to think about it? Um, so, yeah. Uh, I would just add to that, that because we don't have the same lim uh, limitations that policymakers or even politicians do. We're not sitting there going, okay, what's politically possible? What's economically possible? What are yeah. our, our voters going to accept? We can imagine anything because it's all, it's all just uh, an imagined concept. If, if I can jump this on, on exactly on this, I think uh, what you just said, I think it's the beauty and curse or the power and the issue or the drawback and, and the quality of it. Because I think at the center of what you just said is the question of freedom. So the freedom to, to take action. So many policymakers want to do a lot and are very passionate, very committed, very hardworking. And I want to defend them because I, so many people are trying so hard to make a change. 
but then you are with bureaucracies, you are with lack of resources, lack of money, timelines, changing jobs every three years and things like that. So you are limited uh, in this. Also, sometimes the imagination, creativity, boldness, innovation are not necessarily encouraged or even seen negatively in some, in some spaces. So it really limits people. And I think at the end for artists having this freedom, it's the, the freedom of art. It's what's the most amazing, I think, thing about art, the beauty and the freedom. But then also, of course, it, that's where it brings you back to question of feasibility, uh, of uh, resources, um, so I think that also what limits and then also that's what's scary, because if you look not at policy, but at politics and at the worst uh, regimes that have existed in the world, they always resorted to art. So I don't know if you can still call it art, but it's still uh, paintings and, uh, and so that represent, in fact, that are uh, used and manipulated to support ideas that are not necessary the free ideas and and so the politics and art and manipulation it's a bit the stretch of what scares also in this discussion but I think uh, all the challenges are, are are many others like also I think it's a and this I think it's really changing it's the importance of cross-disciplinary approaches I think that's evolving a lot and also we see with a topic like climate change and environment, you oblige, in fact, people to get out of their boxes and silos and talk together. You have no choice in a way but to do it. But then you have also a difference on those who imagine policies, write things, and then how do you implement them? How do you put them into action? You have, on the contrary, people who are focused only on response, on action, on immediate and don't have time to necessarily imagine a long-term vision of a policy. And then again, you are in a disconnect. And as, uh, as you just said, for me, it's key this policy action with art in a way as the connector and the glue, uh, it offers this opportunity. So like everything in this world, I don't think it's just good per se, I don't know. It's what we make out of it that can be good, but as always, human beings can also turn things into the most beautiful and best things into the worst. So I think it's it's also the a whole debate about the responsibility then of artists. And as we have responsibility of researchers, of policymakers, of politicians, everyone, and of each citizen, you end up with this basic question of responsibility and really of freedom. I think it comes really to... to I like art because I think you, you can allow more freedom to, to, to be expressed. You can be a bit more maybe um, if, yeah, we can accept more. Uh, and in the same time, we live in a world where no, you, there's also political correctness or social media control. And so you can't do also anything you want and just say it's art. So I think that's why this debate that connects policy art on very sensitive issues like migration and urgency questions like climate change are necessary because it brings us back to 
key concepts that lead our lives, in fact, as each individual. So yeah, <laughs> I stop here. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for this. And actually, I would like to invite uh, now our attendees to be part of this very interesting discussion. So I will call back Abby and ask her to help me managing the questions. Abby. Sure. So I'll, I'll do two uh, to start with. One for Dina and Trish asks, what would you say are the main research questions that need to be asked now in order to better anticipate prepare for and respond to current and future climate related migration. And then uh, the second question for Lena and Tio is from Lisa, um, who says the reversion in your film is very powerful. Which policymakers in the UK are you hoping will watch your film and with what effect? So Dina, if you- Yes. It's a very tough question. I think that um, the research agenda has so much evolved on migration and climate change and environment over the past year. And there is it's so dynamic, so much interest. It coming, it's coming from everywhere. Uh, and it's so interdisciplinary and cross-cutting that for me, I would say maybe to what I see as missing, maybe it's more to, to understand in current migration um, roads, migration data, migration strategies, my, uh, migration knowledge more globally to still try to identify better in what we know on mainstream big data on migration about what we know more about the environmental and climate change um drivers and intention and and role so one one more like looking at the big migration data and trying to identify more the the environmental climate change dimension and then on the contrary i would say i think research can go into pools of areas of interest like more water and migration and climate change in very specific areas or oceans acidification migration or extreme heat uh, impact on migration or um, loss of biodiversity, um, ecosystem loss, uh, coastal erosion. So going much more into the environmental hazards, the slow onset ones and defining the, the migration uh, outcomes and migration connections. And yes, so that's for me one of them. And then otherwise I would say cross-disciplinary uh, research as well and maybe much more on the power of art and, and and migration as we are discussing it I think also that's uh, of interest but there's so much ongoing on gender there is so much ongoing on connecting to food security to to trafficking issues so there it's opening and opening so there's I think space for for a lot of um of research to be continued. And then also to connect more the research to the impact of research. Maybe we can have people working on researching on how much research is impacting policies. And that's another area. But I find this question, it's, it's huge though. I could find a lot of uh, proposals of more research to do, though I also find that a lot is ongoing. 
these were just a few ideas yeah thank you and then um the second question for Lena and Tien. Oh, well thank you to Lisa for this uh challenging question one which is quite uh, pointed um I think for me, the policymakers I'd like to see the film were those who inform our current Home Secretary's migration policies, um, and also those who inform um, uh, our current lack of support for funding for loss and damage. I think that the UK needs to start to think about um, its historic responsibility for the climate crisis and act in relation and be a little bit more generous like Uganda and other countries which are currently hosting the lion's shares of, of refugees. Not um, because I think we need to, to, to start to wrong, uh, write that wrong a little bit, but I, I don't know if that's a very good answer. Lena, do you have a better one? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm with you in terms of these two groups. Um, but I guess, I guess because uh, it's so close to home, this film, I think it's also a wish for a broader audience as well, uh, not just policymakers. I think because it is about the kind of hybrid geopolitics. And, um, you know, it does have some slight speculation about post-Brexit UK in terms of the union. Um, so I think it, yeah, in the, in the local context, I think um, the, the broader the audience, I think the better. <laughs> and I think it's also important to mention that the, the reality is now that in our film, although we are portraying a family from the global north being displaced, the, the majority, not, not entirety, of those who are being displaced or being forced to um, migrate is, are in the global south. And even though we, we worked very hard to try and present conditions which were not favourable, which were challenging for our family, even something like the temporary accommodation which they go to are, uh, and the support they receive from their government, which isn't doing very well in their fictional island, is far greater than that can be afforded by other governments, for example, small island developing states who, um, who are currently forced, uh, facing displacement. Brilliant, thank you. And um, I'll read the next two questions. Uh, so another one on the film. So Anthony asks, does the film consider any social relations in addition to those of the immediate family? And then I've got a question uh, for maybe all of you. Um, Mia asks, how can we help people come to an understanding that climate refugees are valid for receiving refugee status deserving our compassion? Okay, if anyone wants to start. <laughs> You want to start on the movie question? Yeah. No. Uh, okay. Well, I think we're trying to understand uh, this question, Anthony. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, uh, I, are you suggesting? I think uh, we'll take it this way: that um, do we explore in the the film 
uh, family ties, for example, in other locations uh, and the sort of support that the, our current, uh, the, the family that is focused on in the film could receive from other family members. Um, we don't, uh, we actually, we, we reveal in the story that their family isn't able to support, that they no longer live on the island and that they can't reunify with other family members because of restrictions due to visas. Um, so we, we don't show how that family sits within its larger family network, but we do try and show the limitations. Um, but there is a lot of um, sort of social, economic context and positioning, uh, both for the reasons of um, further sort of contextualizing and making, um, you know, setting the scene within this state of the island of brain. Uh, but also to um, draw more on specific circumstances that uh, motivate the family to uh, further, um, you know, decide to, to leave the island. Um, and there is also a, a quite a strong emphasis on the uh, power relationship, a kind of, um, you know, st structural implementation of the the migrant mother, the character who tells the story within the um, within the resettlement interview, which is uh, both kind of explored through through the very positioning of the scene and the, the kind of the, the relations of the bodies in the room, but also uh, by the character on the of the interviewer who's got a kind of dual, if not a triple role in this scene both as an extension of an institution but also as a civil servant but also someone I don't want to reveal too much of a narrative but also someone with his own motivations. So maybe I can say a few words on the next question that was raised. I find this it's a very important question for our panel today because it's exactly raises the issue in fact that we are talking about in the question that was posed there is a connection that's made directly between our compassion for people so our humanity our understanding of a situation our kindness our open openness to to welcoming someone and this refugee, climate refugee status. And I think that's what I'm working on this topic. I saw so many times that in fact, when you work on migration, you have to understand the legal issues. You have to understand the technical issues. You have to understand the bureaucracies. You have to understand very boring and, and concrete things that are key for migration policy, like consular, uh, protection or visa entry and stay, multiple entry visa, um, capacities of a country to offer uh, services that prepare to migration or integrate to understand when this migration is internal and it's not about crossing borders and the need for third country um, protection, but it's about respecting human rights at home. So. I find this question, it's very important because I really think that there's, if we are completely obsessed with this climate refugee status, I feel sometimes it's almost the wrong 
um, solution because we will end up by boxing people in a category and how will you be able to prove that it's climate change impact or how will it be different if you can prove for instance your loss and issue of insurance missing or it it's so complex to isolate and prove also there's the case of the Kiribati uh, national that uh, was in New Zealand and who asked for uh, protection status and he was not um, he he it's in a way he was recognized that climate change is a true issue that can't allow him to to go home but in the same time the threshold to prove that his country hasn't done anything to to respond to the issue it's so high that it's very complicated and and it didn't lead to anything so what i'm trying to say is i think we can't just focus on one solution. Maybe in some cases we can define a status which is maybe very related to disaster displacement, crossing a, a border, but even there, the Nansen Initiative with whom you worked very closely and now the platform on disaster displacement, they also ended up by providing a toolkit of policies. So I think we have to be very careful not to, to in a way, driven by this compassion to lead people into believing that they will have a status they will not have and stop us from imagining different kind of innovative solutions that could really help. So pushing for the respect of human rights, pushing for innovative visa systems, pushing for temporary protection, pushing for labor migration, uh, and student movements that allow people to move before they are in a tragic situation, pushing for insurance. And I know this is also in your movie uh, to protect ahead. So I think it, you need loads of different uh, solutions and not to be just focused on, on one as the golden solution because it's so complicated, but it's exactly what we, we are discussing. It's how you keep this humanity in a world made with all these bureaucratic rules and how much art in a way can provide some, some thinking answers uh, in building this bridge between this humanity and a dry, totally dry way of approaching migration, which we don't want either. <laughs> So I hope that my, my, my response doesn't sound like, uh, I don't know, inhuman in a way because I'm, but uh, I really think that's very important when you work in bureaucracies, international organization, policymaker, with policymakers to, to be realistic about what policy is about and how you support and how you push them in fact to innovate and think differently, but without just then limiting uh, and denying the reality of complex technical realities that are there about migration and that need to be considered. So thank you for this question. I found it a very tough question, very interesting and, and really at the heart of our discussion today. So yes, I would say we need more research on this one. <laughs> we'll come back to the former question. Yeah, I also think that actually this question was particularly helpful to, you know, to kind of summarize all the key issues that we touched upon in this seminar. 
And unfortunately, we need to, to draw to a, to a close. We only have one minute left. Uh, so I would like to use it for, thank you so much, Dina, Lena, and Theo for joining us today. Yeah, it was a huge learning experience for me, and I'm sure it was the same for all the audience. And, and I'm really, really grateful that you wanted to join us today. And, and I also want to acknowledge all the, the work that we put into organizing the seminar, all the thinking, all the exchange of ideas. Uh, it was personally a fantastic experience for me. Uh, so thanks again. And thank you, Abby, also for your assistance and for managing the, the questions so, so well. Uh, I need your technical help for the last time because we need to announce the next uh, seminar um, next week. Uh, we're gonna have, um, we're gonna change the topic completely. We're gonna talk about Russia and Ukraine, Europe's biggest security crisis since World War II, question mark. Um, so please join us also uh, for, for this seminar next week. Um, and with this, I think I'm, I'm really done. And I want to thank you again, all the attendees for your time, the speakers today, and, and Habi for her assistance. Um, thank you for the applause. Wow. Massive applause. Thank you, Abby. Yeah. Thank you. And hopefully let's keep this conversation going. And if you have any other question or curiosity, <laughs> you, you can reach us out uh, via email. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye.